Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Stephen Love, Program Officer for the Environment with the Cleveland Foundation and a proud City Club member. It's my pleasure to introduce today's forum, the second in our Igniting the Future series, exploring how the Cuyahoga River fire and its aftermath set the stage for the modern environmental movement. Astute and nimble reactions from Cleveland Mayor Carl Stokes and his brother Congressman Louis Stokes elevated the river fire to a national environmental emergency culminating in landmark federal policies, including the Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Water Act, and created momentum behind the first Earth Day celebration on April 22, 1970. While two African-American men played an integral role in the advent of the environmental movement, since that time, it can be argued that communities of color have received little visibility in the mainstream movement's progression, yet communities of color are disproportionately affected and impacted by environmental risks including soil and water contamination, air pollution, lead poisoning, and climate change. Today is the 26th World Water Day, an annual United Nations Day that highlights the importance of fresh water. The global theme for this year is leave no one behind. To consider marginalized communities as they are often overlooked and discriminated against when trying to access clean, safe drinking water. It seems appropriate then for us to gather today to have a conversation about advancing a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive environmental movement. Our discussion will span more than just water. We've assembled a cadre of local, regional, and national voices to share their perspectives on the work being done to address environmental inequality and injustice. Guiding the conversation is IdeaStream senior host and producer, Rick Jackson. Mr. Jackson is an award-winning journalist with over more than 35 years of experience as a television radio anchor and reporter. He's been on air in all 50 states and in 40 countries, and is currently the host of Ideas and News Depth for WVIZ-PBS. Mr. Jackson, I now turn the forum over to you to introduce our esteemed panelists. Thank you, Stephen. You know, we've all been in parks. We've all gone to trash pickups. We've all walked along the river and picked up trash. But does it seem sometimes when you go to these places, you see the same folks at place after place after place? There's a reason. It seems we often ostracize certain communities, certain groups from coming along with us. Not everywhere, but often enough. Why? That's part of what we're here to discuss today, environmental equality. We've assembled a great panel for you today. I will introduce these wonderful ladies. Uh, Samia Bray is with an eco-consultant and diversity advocate with Green 2.0. Donna Hope is with Emerald Cities Cleveland. Deb Yandala is with the Conservancy for the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Could you welcome them, please? <laughs> uh, 
Our conversation, I'm going to start with you, Don. I'm going to pick on you right off the bat, if I can. She just got here, too. <laughs> Literally just landed. Literally just landed. Walked in here with her suitcase. You tell me that we have lots of climate reality seminars around the country and mm. sessions. One you recently attended, though, I know, was mm -hmm. the first to have an environmental justice or civil rights angle to some of those discussions. A lot of people would be surprised by that, the first one. Tell us why it's so important that we've made that step. Thanks for that question, Rick. I'll just also mention that I think there was a little switcheroo on the introduction. So That's I'm the Green 2.0 advisor, and, and Samia will get into the great work that she does. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, you're Green 2.0 as well. Um, <laughs> so I literally just got off the plane this morning from Atlanta, um, where I was for the 40th Climate Reality Project training. Uh, this is a climate change awareness initiative and training outreach led by uh, former Vice President Al Gore. And the first one, that specifically had the theme of environmental justice. The first one that had the most racially diverse panelists, speakers, workshops, and therefore attendees. Uh, this was the first time uh, in the history of the organization, Climate Reality Project, that they also had a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement, uh, which I um, helped uh, a lot on the back end with editing and revising um, and encouraging them to make a big deal about it, because it was a big deal. This is a white-led, pretty much white-fronted organization that hadn't really dealt in these issues. Um, and I encouraged them to, um, to be proud of that work and the commitments that they were making going forward. Uh, this was also the first time that the training, again, the 40th, uh, where they um, pledged a commitment to the Hamez principles of democratic organizing and to following the 17 principles of environmental justice. These are huge commitments. Um, and I didn't want them to make light of it. I wanted them to, um, to really speak about it, but also be uh, honest and authentic about how they could uphold those commitments. Um, and this uh, three-day training in Atlanta, which happened from last Thursday through Saturday, was outstanding. They're um, most well-attended. They had over 2,000 attendees. Um, we had environmental justice leaders like Dr. Bob Bullard, uh, Dr. Beverly Wright, uh, Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, um, and we had for the first time an interfaith meeting uh, at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the historic church from Martin Luther King. Uh, it was absolutely incredible. And I think, if anything, aspirationally they went into this thinking that it'll be different. They have no idea how transformative it was. Um, I served as a mentor. This was my third training. Um, and I also helped form a new people of color working group and we had a, our first mixer there in Atlanta at the historic Pascal's restaurant, if you're familiar with, with Atlanta. Um, and it was fantastic, and we're gonna continue to, to talk about what it meant and why it's so important to not just marginalize the marginalized communities in conversation. If we're talking about climate change and climate awareness, we have to talk about people of color communities and uh, low-income communities which are affected worst and first. Thank you for the <clears throat> base on which <clears throat> excuse me, we can build a foundation. Samia, there are many organizations, perhaps under the radar, doing what we'd call the hard work. It's our job really to start with them so we don't have to start from zero, to find them, grow them, and build. Absolutely. So Rick, thank you. And uh, I want to say a special thank you to Matt Gray, who made sure that I was on this panel. So Matt, thank you for that. Because I, um, as I think about the work and I think about the people who are in this room and those who could not get in this room because it is sold out, 
I have the wonderful and distinct pleasure of representing a national organization, but being able to do the majority of my work locally. And so I have an opportunity to see both a national view, a regional view, and a local view. In that capacity, and I had to write it down because um, there are so many, you can't do this work alone. Big issues require big solutions, and it requires many hands. And so I'll just highlight a couple of those hands because today I want to make sure that we uplift the people. Equity work, it's hard, but it's necessary. There are so many people in this room who are doing this work. It's not shouted from the rooftops, but they do it anyway. Why do they do it? Because repair is needed. And so I just want to share a few of those names with you today. And you know, if you want to talk to me later, I'll be happy to go into detail. I want to start by thanking the funders, uh, because without funding, none of this work happens. So there's the Cleveland Foundation, the Gunn Foundation, United Black Fund, J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation, Joyce Foundation, and there's lead organizations that I don't think many of you know about. Two of them are in this room. There's a Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District who's working very closely with a national organization called, um, excuse me, um, U.S. Water Alliance. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You heard it. You grabbed it. You brought it back to me. Thank you. See, I told you we couldn't do this by ourselves, right? I gave you a really clear thanks. You did it right on cue. Um, and then there's Policy Link, who's also working on a green framing paper. And with both of those organizations, there's national organizations who are working with local organizations like the sewer district and the water department. And we're working throughout 10 cities collectively. Now, why is that important? These are people that are not just talking about it, they're doing it. They're doing it. I want to just pause there. My grandmother said when it's important, you say it three times and you pause. They are doing the hard work. Because sometimes in the hard work, people get black eyes, people get feelings hurt, uh, somebody doesn't like something that was done, but they keep doing it anyway with a commitment to the purpose of an equity framework in the work that they're doing. So that's just two of the lead organizations. Also, of course, Black Environmental Leaders, uh, which has brought together almost 20 organizations. And when Jackie and uh, Keith were up here and they were speaking, uh, someone said, I've never heard of them. But they're doing the work anyway, because they're not doing the work for you to hear about them. They're doing the work because the work needs to happen. And then just two more that I want to say really quickly. Um, GCP and COSI, the Commission on Economic Inclusion, yeah, they're making steps. And also Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, the racial equity training. Big problems require work at every single level. The people's names that I've just mentioned to you, the organization's names that I've mentioned to you, they're doing work at every single level. As a result of that training of the Racial Equity Institute, thousands of people have gone through either the groundwater training or the half-day training, and they have opened their eyes. They have opened their eyes, and they're doing the hard work. And so when you ask how do we get it done, mm -hmm. we don't get it done alone. We get it done together. 
with all of those organizations. And I put a personal challenge to everybody in this room. Join us. Donna Hope, some American cities are expressing desires and goals such as 100% renewable in 20 years. They forget there are communities that are currently 30 years behind where we need to be when it comes to environmental infrastructure. What of them? How do we save them and bring them with us? Oh, save. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, so I'm from uh, New York City, um, uh, and I have worked in various capacities in the environment. My academic background is actually environmental engineering, and I've worked in consulting firms, but then I transitioned into policy work, and I worked in the New York City Mayor's Office of Sustainability. At the time, under, the, under Mayor Bloomberg, um, we had a commitment to a 30% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030. Um, which we then advanced um, because we were going beyond our, uh, our own goals and said, you know, why not, why not just go crazy? 80% reduction by 2050. Um, sounds great. It's extremely difficult to achieve. But, you know, we just had this IPCC report come out. And we just had this U.S. assessment report come out on climate. Said, Under this administration, this Congress put out a U.S. assessment report that is very clear that it, it certainly um, agrees with the IPCC report that says basically we have 10 to 12 years before we're, at, we're really at a point of no return if we're not doing dramatic, drastic efforts to combat climate change. Um, and it's frightening, it's really scary. Um, I think it's really important to keep hope, and I don't just say it because it's my name. Um, <laughs> And the name of my company, You Hope Consulting, and the, and the, and the, uh, the theme I say is the hope is within you, um, because we all have to do our part in some way. And I always try to encourage, I have a lot of mentors, and also I, I, I have mentors, and also I mentor a lot of people. And I always ask for, you know, what is that inspiration, and how can you engage people, particularly climate deniers, and maybe not denial intentionally, but just from lack of information, lack of engagement, particularly in our communities. We're just not having the right framework of dialogue and conversation. Um, I always try to meet people where they are, see what the barrier is to um, understanding or commitment or what that apathy is. Um, so on an individual level, it's very personal. Uh, um, then you move up from there to academic institutions and it's, uh, you know, the youth are gonna be most impacted. The, um, the student strike that happened last Friday was incredible. This happened all over the country and all over the world. The youth are leading the way and the youth are gonna save us, y'all. So, um, you know, don't suppress their voices, support them in any way you can. Um, ask what more um, should be done. How can we center their voices and their efforts? Because um, a lot of times, uh, you know, we, we, we don't give them the agency that they deserve. Um, uh, or the time or, or the platform to really express their concerns, and the youth get it. And they are scared and angry at us and saying, how could you let this happen? So whatever motivation I say, you know, uh, that we can find even on just a basic level before we even get into policy and other things, I'm always looking for and encouraging. And I'm not even sure if that addressed your specific question, but. Okay, it was still good, thank you. Thank you. Debbie Andala. I don't know how many people know that the Cuyahoga Valley National Park is one of only three parks in the Parks to the People movement, the others, if you're a trivia buff, Golden Gate and Gateway in New York, in which urban needs are being addressed with specific intention. But you tell me that we aren't really meeting the urban needs with the CVMP. Yeah. Thank you, Rick. And first of all, it's a really uh, big honor to be on this panel. Yeah, we were established uh, back in 1974 as one of these three parks. 
specifically to address urban unrest of the 60s and 70s. So here in Cleveland, this is in our DNA that this park should serve a wider urban population. We are not seeing that in our, our statistics. We're not seeing that in our staffing patterns, our volunteer patterns. And you know, historically, parks were placed away from people to be in beautiful, pristine areas. And yet, the parks movement is embracing what I think is so much at our core, is that it is healthy for people to be outside and be with nature. It's important for people to have places to exercise. It's important for physical health. It's important for mental health. So as, as, a par as park leaders, we have to ask the question, if we're not serving the wider population, what are we doing wrong? Our organization, the Conservancy, has initiated a, a, a special program around diversity, equity, and inclusion to infuse throughout our organization, uh, led by uh, the brilliant Yolanda Hamilton, who is just really coaching us uh, uh, very well on this work. We are really trying to change our culture internally, looking at our program, our, our employment uh, pipelines, our volunteer pipelines, to try to be a park for all people, which is what we were really set out to be. You know, Rick, if I, if I might, I can speak to that as well, because collaboration, like I said, it goes wide. Um, the national parks, I don't know many of you know, they actually do a reenactment of the Underground Railroad, because the Underground Railroad actually came through this region. And my family and I had an opportunity to go to the library, and we saw the reenactment. Yeah. And no offense to Cuyahoga Valley, I'm sure they asked the question, right? It's about the decisions that we make. I'm sure they asked the question, but as we watched the presentation of the Underground Railroad, there were no people of color in the presentation. I'm sure they made the ask, and the reason I'm sure they made the ask is because my family looked at each other and we said, how can they do the Underground Railroad and not have any people of color? <laughs> and so then we said, we would like to volunteer. And so as we talk about equity and we talk about getting the work done for the last four years my mother myself my son and my daughter we have all been volunteering mm. for the reenactment of the underground railroad mm. it wasn't because they didn't ask they asked mm. will you answer mm. that's where equity happens mm. it's not just one it's a balance mm. okay. mm. I want you to follow that. How do we reach out to people who feel like I'm not being included or worse, I'm being ostracized? So here's an interesting thing that, and again, I will own this. This is Samia's personal comment. I will own this. Mm -hmm. I have a belief that it is one decision at a time. Mm -hmm. Now some people say, well Samia, that's just too simple. Think about it. Everything that every one of us are exposed to, experience, or participate in was because of one decision that led to another decision, that led to another decision. And I have a suspicion that we have ended up in this place where we have to have a conversation about mm -hmm. equity because of a lot of decisions that built upon other decisions. And so it is my hypothesis that we undo that now that we have new information by perhaps making different decisions mm -hmm. that build on different decisions, that build on different outcomes. Mm -hmm. It's not hard, but sometimes it's much easier to blame the other person and say what they aren't doing or what they're doing to me. Now please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that injustice does not exist in our world. Of course it does. 
But what I am saying is that there's a room full of people. We're sold out. There's a lot of decisions happening in this room right now. Mm -hmm. Right now. One decision at a time. Mm -hmm. I, think the, I think a part of our answer lies inside of there. Mm -hmm. Donna, how do we remove that banner of elitist from the environmental movement so that everyone can be included? Yeah, you know, I hate that banner. I do. Um, and a lot of it, it's, it's false perception and perpetuation of um, an incomplete picture. Um, my environmental love started at a very young age, encouraged by my family. Harlem raised for generations, and we would go to state parks and, and camp out. Um, and I didn't see anything unusual about that at all until I came back and, and told my colleagues, they're like, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about, like black people in the woods? What are you, <laughs> they're from Harlem? I was like, yeah, that's what we're, I don't understand. Isn't that what everyone does? I don't understand. Um, and, um, you know, my family always had a, a strong connection to nature and encouraged my environmentalism. Um, and then it was fostered through um, community engagement, through the Girl Scouts, through um, my environmental uh, work, and then later on professionally in the work that I did. Um, and now I work actually as a freelance consultant, specifically dealing with diversity, equity, inclusion, and environmental fields. And my invitation today uh, came through um, being consultant for the Trust for Public Land. And uh, even though she's not present, a shout out to Chanel Smith, the Ohio State Director, who's the reason that I'm here and was invited to, to join this panel. Um, and the Trust for Public Land um, has a lot of agency and access to green spaces, and specifically for people. Um, and as was mentioned, because of its particularly health benefits, uh, spiritual benefits, mental health benefits um, to us to have access to this nature. But it hasn't always felt so welcoming to us. Um, it hasn't, I mean, I've experienced this personally. I do a lot of uh, traveling around the country, and I go to as many state and national parks as possible. And, and even if verbally there hasn't been any accusations, um, just visibly I felt negative energy directed my way, just for existing in the space. And whatever perception of like, why are you here, or, or how did you get here, or how dare you, uh, just absolutely unfathomable. Um, and so I understand that, oh, that it's not just enough to say, no, this park really is for you, but is it? And if I go to that park and bring my family and friends, are we welcome, are we safe? Mm -hmm. Um, and this is something that um, the Trust for Public Land is working on deeply um, in terms of a new strategic plan development, a whole suite of initiatives and impact areas, and it's difficult conversation. This is, again, a white-led, white-fronted organization that hasn't really dealt with diversity, equity, inclusion internally in terms of their staff, executive staff and board members, and also externally in terms of their framework with how they engage with communities. So we understand, one, that it's very hard work, but it's very necessary work. And um, you know, I'm committed to doing what I can, and whether it's from uh, enacting, again, and I always, as a consultant, I always say, it's great to put these words on paper and say your yes. commitments to diversity, equity, inclusion, et cetera. But how are you going to uphold that? How are you going to commit to that? Who are you working with? Who are you uh, inviting to the table for these conversations? Um, how inclusive are you really being? And if you're hiring, are you retaining that diverse uh, uh, talent? Because if it's a revolving door, then there's some internal culture that still hasn't been addressed. Deb, you said there are unspoken messages that you've seen at yours and others, other parks that really keep black and brown people off that front door. Yes, it's, it's some of it intentional, some of it not. I think most of it is not, but it doesn't matter. We need to, we need to make changes. If uh, The story I love to tell is we service a lot of children, a lot of children from Cleveland schools, Akron schools, and when those children get off the bus and they see the leaders and they don't see any faces that look like them, 
that's a big problem. Yeah. That has mm -hmm. to change. Yeah. So part of it is staffing, part of it's programming. It is internal cultural cu culture, and it's also what we do externally, how we position ourselves, where we market. Uh, we are finding great partners out. I see many of them in this room today that are great local grassroots partners who are helping us uh, work on our culture and our programming, and I think that's where collaboration is really the key to this. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, Mia, you talked about the idea that a lot of these organizations, white-led, walk mm -hmm. into a neighborhood and they act as if they're the first people to ever introduce this idea of reduce, reuse, recycle. Yes. <laughs> That's another Samia idea. I own that one. <laughs> uh, over, over, over my career, I've had the opportunity to serve as a consultant for 30 years as well. And so in doing that, um, I provide organizational systems. Um, consulting and I get a chance to see behind the scenes. Uh, I really love this work. So uh, yes, I, I speak to that because, um, hmm. yeah, that's real. Um, I've worked with clients who will say something like, we have a great idea. We're going to go into the urban environment and we're going to tell them about how important it is to have clean water. <laughs> And so I have to put my, my um, I'm a mom of four, okay, so I have to put my mom on, right, there for a second and say, okay, remember, sometimes when a person discovers something and they're very excited about it and they're zealous about it, and it, to them, it's like the first time it's been discovered. <laughs> but it hasn't, right? And so sometimes what we can do, unmistakably, like, like you said, Deb, is we can step into a community and believe that a concept is the first concept because it was new to us. Mm -hmm. And un unfortunately or fortunately, we're very glad that you now get the concept. But keep in mind, it's not the first time. What do I mean specifically? I am the second generation of um, migrants who have come from the Deep South, right? My parents, both my mom and my father, my father from Georgia, my mother from Ypsilanti, Michigan, for, I mean Ypsilanti, Mississippi, um, for any of those who know that area. And when they came here, you hear the, the, the immigrant stories? I'm gonna share a migrant story with you. They came here with the gasoline in their gas tank. And when it ran out, and I say it ran out, when it ran out, <laughs> They were in Cleveland. <laughs> they met, Samia was born. Okay. <laughs> and so what do I mean by that? At that time, people of color could not access, use, purchase, buy all of the things that would be needed for something as simple as uh, gardening, right? Fertilizer sometimes, maybe you could purchase, maybe you could not. So organic gardening is a part of my DNA, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe I couldn't shop at a certain store. Maybe we couldn't walk into a certain environment. Maybe we weren't allowed to have a credit card. So reduce, reuse, recycle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, we learned how to use things over and over and over and over again. Now, we didn't have a marketing department to call it that. And no offense to our wonderful <laughs> marketing departments. <laughs> But I share that to you to say, yeah, it, you know, I joke, but it, it is very serious. Just be mindful. If you're working with an environmental organization and you're doing a great work of going into the community and you're speaking with people, check in first. Check in first. 
see what the people in the room know because you might just find that they have some gifts and some skills mm -hmm. and some knowledge mm -hmm. about that which you've just discovered in your class that <laughs> can be very helpful to you. Mm -hmm. And it has been proven over generations. Mm -hmm. yeah. Over generations. One last note, if you will allow me to say, specifically what am I talking about? We, this year, this is the 400th anniversary of slavery trade to the United States. Mm. People who were brought involuntarily from Africa to the United States were brought here because they were amazing agriculturists. I, that one will sink in for somebody on the way home. <laughs> they understood how to grow crops in any environment. So much so that some of them did not know where they were being taken to when they would arrive or how long it would take to get there. But they strategically sowed seeds within their hair mm -hmm. so that wherever they landed, they knew one thing. They had a crop, they knew how to grow, mm -hmm. and if they could find some land, they would grow it mm -hmm. and they would survive. Mm -hmm. It is a miracle that mm -hmm. we are still here today. Mm -hmm. So please remember, when you step into communities, it is not necessarily the first time that a concept has been experienced. Mm -hmm. Take a breath. <laughs> so far, so good, right? I'm Rick Jackson, senior host and producer for IdeaStream. Today, we are listening to a forum on increasing diversity in the modern environmental movement featuring Samia Bray, director of Emerald Cities Cleveland, Donna Hope, eco-consultant and diversity advocate for Green 2.0, and Debbie Andala, CEO of the Conservancy for Cuyahoga Valley National Park. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, city club members, guests, students, those joining you via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you would like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try and work that into the program as well. Holding the microphones today, City Club intern, Oramilo Urasana, and Marketing and Outreach Coordinator, Julia Wong. May we have the first question, please? So I'll take a question from Twitter first. Got it. Um, so given the linkage between recreation and the environment, how can we provide meaningful and sustainable opportunities for minorities to engage with the Cuyahoga River and Lake Erie on their terms, mm. including recreational usage of the river and lake that lack racial and economic diversity? Deb, you've got water and parks, so go we ahead. We do, and the Cuyahoga River, of course, is the key uh, resource of Cuyahoga Valley National Park. It's a great question. Uh, the river runs right through the park and right up through Cleveland, starts uh, east of Cleveland. It's, it's a really wonderful resource. I think to help uh, folks be comfortable with the river, this is where our community partners come in and through working with community organizations and providing a variety of ways to have access to the river. Uh, and, and I think it, this is, I, th I hear that as a programmatic question. And uh, again, I'm going to come back to a health question of getting people active to use, to use the river. And so we certainly count on partnerships to get people on. And in the Cuyahoga Valley and in, in the National Park, we are really focusing on turning our river into a water trail, which I think will be wonderful for northeastern Ohio. Mm -hmm. I was actually out of the headwaters about a week ago, right. and there were people on canoes right. on the river, even though it's March, brave people. <laughs> they were on canoes on the river. That's what you want to see more of, but you want to Absolutely. see a diversity of people yes. using kayaks and canoes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Everybody should feel welcome. Yeah. It's our river. Next question. 
Erica with Syed, which is see you at the top, and we have a youth group where we take black and brown youth and expose them to activities and sports where they have been traditionally underrepresented. And and speaking with, well, listening to you guys, Donna, especially you being a consultant who hasn't necessarily worked in Cleveland or a part of our Northeast Ohio culture, um, nationally, Who's doing this work? What are some models that we can follow? Because I know for me, Cleveland is tough. It's just a tough area to be in. It's very segregated. It's just, it's rough. So trying to integrate this world and expose our young people without holding on to my baggage that I've been carrying for years, you know, it's just a very tough spot to be in. But I know that there are spaces, there are national parks there that are doing great jobs with representing diverse populations in their and their educational you know, tools and stuff. So who's doing it right? And Don, I don't know if you can share from what you've seen and the groups that you met with as some good models for us to begin to look at as well, especially grassroots orgs as we step into these lanes. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, I'll, I'll jump in first. And sure, then, um, um, so as a consultant, the reason that I chose this challenging path uh, and I'm sure you could speak to this too. Um, it's a constant hustle, y'all. For those who are interested in doing it, talk to me. Um, but I love it because it gives me the opportunity to, to, to work with various entities. And I've worked nonprofit and public sector, local, state, and federal. Um, I, I've worked with philanthropy. And, um, and so I'll go back to the philanthropy, actually. So this was, I had a three-year contract with the JPB Foundation out of New York City. And they were supporting grantees who were supporting the Clean Power Plan. Rest in peace. Um, and the, grant, <laughs> the grantees who were um, supporting state Im implementation plans. And for those who are not familiar, this was an Obama administration um, uh, idea where each state would come up with its own state implementation plan to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions and increase investments in renewable energy. And though not mandated, it was incentivized to also work in low-income communities and communities of color. Um, it was one of the first things that was repealed with the new administration. Um, but the, the grantees knew that it was uh, never necessarily a, a, a done deal. And they committed anyway to working on the local levels. And they made concerted efforts to um, engage in ways that they hadn't before. And this is you know, from big greens like Sierra Club and NRDC to, to small organization, smaller organizations like Climate Justice Alli uh, Alliance or Movement Strategy Center. Um, 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 uh, we Act, West Harlem Environmental Justice um, Action, and several other entities. Um, so I'll say that um, there's a lot of organizations that were inspired philanthropically from their funders to engage on a deeper level, and this is happening more and more. Um, but also they just took the charge because they knew it was the right thing to do. So I'd say um, look for your, your local organizations in that in that uh, manner first also. I'll give a shout out to Green 2.0 since it was mentioned as part of my introduction. So this is an environmental diversity initiative out of a nonprofit um, in DC called the Raven Group. And uh, the idea was to put together a comprehensive report on the exact numbers of diversity or really lack thereof in the environmental fields, in particular in NGOs, government agencies, and philanthropy. And we commissioned a report out of, with a um, uh, Professor Dorsita Taylor at the University of Michigan and came up with this comprehensive 200-page report that had all the stats and figures that confirmed exactly what we knew. The numbers are abysmal. And when you get to the executive levels of leadership and the boards of governance, the diversity is severely lacking. We're talking about between top 16% to low zero. 
Um, so um, what we did is not just put out that report, which you can download on the website diversegreen.org, but also we um, disclosed the information and made a whole resource guide. So you can go and you could find information about what organizations are, are doing it right or trying to do it better, who they're working with, who they're collaborating, if they've done diversity statements, <coughs> if they hired chief diversity officers, who they're working with. And, and I'm just one of literally two dozen advisors that make up the working group advisory. Um, so we're a wealth of resources on that website is a wealth of resources. So that's just a couple of, of examples I'll give and if you have anything to add. Well, first of all, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in the fan club of CU at the Top, who I think is one of the greatest local organizations we have here in Northeastern mm -hmm. Ohio. And I think you're a great example. Where I see national parks being successful around the country, it's local organizations who are taking this work seriously, breaking down barriers, and again, partnering. Um, you know, we found as we work with kids at our environment-led center, sometimes our language is way off, for example. What's a hike? If you're a city kid, you may not have heard the word hike. And we talk about going on hikes. Uh, sometimes it's, it's clothing related, um, sometimes economic related. And that's where partnering with local groups and having you help us be authentic in our work. Uh, it, that's really, really important to us. Thank you. Next question. You all acknowledge that a lot of young people like myself feel a lot of pressure about fighting for environmental justice. What can the adults do in this room, no matter their background, do to help people like me and make sure that everyone is engaged moving forward? Hmm. Want to grab that one? Sure. Um, well, one of the things is, um, and, and I am a broken record, um, adults, let's make some different decisions now that we have new information. Um, and then the other thing is, um, if we can, and this is us adults doing the hard work, our own internal work, if we can think about some of the roles that we have attributed to certain positions, to certain um, activities, and begin to look at who else could we be grooming for that, or who else is already groomed for that, that perhaps the view of certain demographics are good for these roles, other demographics are better for these roles, and challenge ourselves to look at the capabilities versus the role positioning, mm -hmm. I guess, mm -hmm. is the way that I can best describe that. Mm -hmm. um, can I say one thing to that too? Sometimes we as adults talk about uh, the young people have to be worried about the world of the future. Right. Um, this is your world right now. Right. And we as adults need to listen. We need to be better listeners. And sometimes we just need to get out of the way and let you take charge. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a perfect example. So a young person may be very mature. They may be young, but they may be very mature. They may have an understanding. But there may be some unwritten rules or perceptions within our organization that says, no, somebody to get that position has to be a certain age or have had right. to have a certain experience. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that person might be your right person. So again, challenge ourselves to look at some of those automatic decisions and maybe be a little bit more thoughtful about them. I don't know how old that questioner is other than not very, but would you like to see, <laughs> would you like to see people like that brought into boards, brought into companies. You know, mm. Why can't we have an 18 or a 20 year old mm -hmm. help us? Yes. I hear a lot of amen in the audience. Yes. There. But that's yeah. scary. That's scary. Because for us. both. <laughs> well, first, they may not know the protocols, right? And then secondly, they may be concerned that if they said something, the civility within the room might just position them right out mm -hmm. of having a voice. Mm -hmm. So both. Both. I think both. I think both. Next question. 
Good afternoon. As the mayor of an entering suburb, it's number three in infant mortality. What yeah. I've heard today is the environment, and we know we found that infant mortality is not just poverty; it's stress, mm -hmm. it's racism, mm -hmm. it's single parenthood, it's depression, it's, it's mental illness. And I've been looking for solutions. I'd like to connect with one of you that maybe after this. How do we marry? the environmental work you're doing to address infant mortality mm. and the stress that sometimes results these infant deaths where babies don't get to live to be a year old. Mm -hmm. Do you want to speak to that? Well, I'll come back to my earlier comment that I think health, uh, that parks and the outside, being in nature is important for physical health, it's important for mental health, and if we deny people that access, that's a big problem. You know, I'll say my, what I think is a challenge. I'm a Cleveland native. I love this city. We have some of the best health care in the world here. We have award-winning metro parks, a national park right on our doorstep, and our health outcomes are horrible for some people in this community. I wish that the, the health community and the, the environmental community um, would come together and say we are going to make a change for people in Cleveland. And I'd also like to add, if you could raise your... Oh, I'm sorry. Um, there's a, a young man in the room that I would um, encourage you to connect with. Raise your, raise your hand. Raise it hell higher. Connect with him. Connect with him. Okay. Making dates all over the place. Okay. Next question. Coming up from this side. Way over in the end here. Samia, can you talk a little bit about the work of Emerald Cities uh, and the projects to involve uh, minorities in the environmental movement. Oh, thank you, absolutely. So um, at environmental, excuse me, em it's Emerald Cities Collaborative, and so all of our work is collaboration. And uh, we have a product or a program called uh, E-Contractor Academy. And what we look at is underrepresented uh, businesses, whether they be minority, women, or veteran-owned businesses, or disadvantaged businesses that are very close to the environmental space, but they haven't crossed over into the environmental space because they believe, perhaps, that they don't know what to do. And what we are is that bridge for them. So for example, we have landscapers who we just worked a partnership with uh, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District to provide them some bridge education over seven weeks and then technical assistance for another year to a year and a half that would allow them to step over into green infrastructure and stormwater management. And what they discover is green isn't as big a difference as they thought it was, right? And through that partnership, we attract the experts, like the sewer district, to be able to give them that additional education, but at the same time, they're already working outside. They already understand the seasonality of that work. And so um, that's the type of thing. We've done it in solar, we've done it in green infrastructure and water, and uh, we've also done it with the built space and construction. And if you haven't been to the Emerald Cities website, do take the time to go there. If you're here in the room, you can mm -hmm. check their Twitter page is listed on the brochure. I think it's at Emerald Cities. It is. Okay. I also want to just say that um, uh, the head of Emerald Cities, uh, Denise Fairchild, uh, co-authored or co-edited this amazing book, Energy Democracy, that I highly recommend. It has case studies of real on-the-ground examples of communities of color and low-income communities coming together and pushing against policies and making a real change and difference um, in, in their own agency and their own voice. Excellent reading, just to give a, mm -hmm. a plug for that. I'm glad you pointed out two low-income communities because they aren't always communities of color. Thank you. We need to reach continually across Thank that you. board. Yep. Next question, please. 
Good afternoon. Crystal Davis, Policy Director with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. My question is, uh, what are some of the best practices for engaging non-environmentalists and inspiring them to uh, in, act um, on environmental policy at all levels of government, not just the local level? Mm. I can give an example. Um, since I just came from, I, I mentioned this climate uh, reality project. Um, because I knew it was going to be Atlanta and because my alma mater is Spelman College, just a shout out to AUC, <laughs> um, I made a concerted effort to reach out to um, um, my campus in Spelman and say, I need to see the students at this, at this conference. Particularly, Spelman, um, though it does have an environmental task force club and it does have an environmental science track degree and other things, um, a lot of the HBCUs, and there's over 100 of them, this is historically black colleges and universities, don't have a robust environmental program. So there's not even a knowledge that this exists and that it's a career track and that it has so many infinite possibilities. Um, and also, you know, I give the example of myself, though my academic background is in engineering, I went into policy and actually found it almost a seamless transition into it just because that technical background gave me the ability to sort of jump right in. So, um, um, you know, I made a very concerted effort to do the outreach to Spelman and then the other HBCUs and we had a fantastic turnout of college students and some of them, this was their first exposure to these conversations and their first time hearing and, you know, awestruck by Al Gore, but also, you know, just the idea that, you know, there are so many different ways that we can incorporate environmentalism into our everyday, into our practices, into our studies, and then beyond into our career paths. It was, it was enlightening and that was also inspirational for me and a reminder that, you know, we, I don't think sometimes we do enough to really spread that message and really um, extend that hand and say that you know there's so many opportunities and how can I help with that? So that's just an example I'll give. Yeah. I would just add one thing, and, and Crystal, thanks for your great work. I, this is why environmental education is so important in our schools, so every child has an opportunity to be exposed to environmental learning. I'd also want to say that, and, and Crystal, again, thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, Healing Our Waters just a couple weeks ago had over 200 people in Washington, D.C. speaking with their legislators about these various issues, and Crystal was very, very instrumental in, in leading us through that work. Um, it's important to listen uh, when we're engaging those who are not in the environmental space and helping make the connection for why is this important to you? You know, we're very passionate about what we're passionate about, but if it's not important to that individual, then perhaps they don't have a reason to listen. Mm -hmm. We've talked about maybe six things that could be job one here. You just underlined exposure. Should that be up there as job one as well? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Exposure as in um, exposure to different job opportunities or exposure pathways? Exposure to or? the movement at all. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I think, you know, and there's so much false rhetoric, <laughs> fake news and alternative facts that are out there. <laughs> like, this is so real. You had to go there. Like, it's, it's so <laughs> real and so dire, and the youth in particular, they have to be front and center, they have to be leading this, this effort, they have to be engaged and informed and supported. Hi, I'm Kim Foreman from Environmental Health Watch and I work on healthy homes and sustainable communities. And I think I wanna um, ask a question or ask your perception of this because I think we program a lot of things, we don't connect it to policy, and then we tokenize um, residents and youth or give them stipends and so I've been really working hard at developing budgets that are equitable and the, the line items need to be 
you know, really support those who might not have a degree or whatever, but have experience and lived experience, um, as well as, you know, training folks to death who can train us, quite frankly, you know. And so I think that um, growing the voice, but also we have our perspective, and Samir, you just said what I was gonna talk about is that we have a thing that we wanna get done, but they have other priorities and being more comprehensive in our approaches and not coming from a conservation sometime, but a health lens, because that's what people are experiencing. But really, I'm trying to work on models to really make sure the residents are connected to policy change and actually have opportunities today um, as we still grow capacity. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, James Tusach, Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, and uh, Cleveland resident in Glenville neighborhood. Uh, my question is, as our elected leaders that we have here in our community, our city council members, and maybe not just here in Cleveland, but in New York City and other major metropolitan areas, what is their social responsibility to lead this charge to help meet people where they're at in the grassroots event and helping people realize what the issues that we have here? What suggestions, what have you seen has worked in other communities that we can duplicate here in Cleveland? Well, <laughs> um, in New York City, um, we're very competitive. So we like to um, put forward bold and audacious plans and show that we can uphold them. Um, and that takes so much work on the back end. My, my, my tenure in the mayor's office was um, four years. The first year, I was um, managing a help center for a new law that had rolled out called um, Local Law 84 Benchmarking. This was the energy and water um, reporting requirement for the largest, most iconic buildings in New York City, 50,000 square feet and larger. And um, it was extremely um, tedious to roll out. Um, you had to get these buildings that um, uh, are housing the, the, the stock market, that are housing our biggest um, you know, media companies, and the Real Estate Board of New York, which is extremely influential and powerful. And there was a lot of negotiations that, that happened, and um, I came in after those negotiations, negotiations were done. But what it did is it really formed like a cohesion that hadn't happened before. And um, Mayor Bloomberg's charge in 2006 when he formed the Sustainability Office was to put together the Sustainability Plan. And he realized that it had to be comprehensive on all levels, and it, it required the uh, local government uh, agencies to come together and, and collaborate in ways they hadn't, to outreach in communities in ways they hadn't, partnerships with utility companies where these conversations hadn't been happening, and said, look, if we're really going to have this charge, and at the time it was 30% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030, so we all have to work together, even if we haven't necessarily worked together before in the past so nicely. We have to work together at least on these uh, initiatives. And the benchmarking was, was literally like a benchmark. It was like the lowest common denominator. It was this just, we're just going to start managing our usage. And then from there, we have a baseline and can see where we can make improvements. Um, and I'd say that, you know, that was, um, I was so honored to come in at the beginning of that and sort of see that process. And my role uh, from manager and then transitioning into policy advisor, I literally was coordinating with um, five or six different local agencies, Department of Buildings that was doing the enforcement, Department of Finance that had the building list who had to comply. Um, then you had uh, the mayor's office that was sort of um, managing the entire policy work. Um, but then we were using um, 
our water utility company is actually another agency, Department of Environmental Protection. And again, these agencies hadn't necessarily all worked together before. So we all had to collaborate on that level. Then we had to get our utility companies who hadn't necessarily, um, we had worked with um, uh, um, in this productive a manner to say, hey, we need access. All these buildings are going to need access to their energy usage. Is there a way to put that together? And that required a whole other set of, um, of work. And then the tool, we needed an input tool to take all this data. So then we used an EPA tool uh, called Portfolio Manager Energy Star. And because we automatically became now their biggest client, New York City became hugely influential in, in, in developing that tool. That sort of, it's a free tool, and you could, I think you could still use it online, um, but it had been tailored to this specific ask. And all these other municipalities suddenly said, wow, you know what, if New York City can do it with their million buildings, you know, we can do that too. And we started getting a lot of visitations from a, a lot of other municipalities who were asking about um, how we did it. And, and it's funny how sometimes you don't realize the depth and breadth of work you do until you start talking about it. And we said, wow, that is kind of amazing how we did that, huh? <laughs> um, and so these partnerships and collaborations were crucial. And really fostering those relationships and working together was absolutely pivotal. Being uh, accessible to all the constituents who had to comply. We did a lot of public presentations. We put together the results. We made the public disclosure, and that took a lot of conversation as well. A lot of people didn't want their energy and water usage disclosed, and we explained that it was very important for that uh, to be public-facing and to hold other people accountable. Again, because New York City is so competitive, they wanted to be proud of, of what they were showing and displaying. So I won't say it was easy, but that's just an example of you know, it, it just took thinking outside the box and, and collaborating in ways that we hadn't before. Um, and if there needed to be some compromise, you know, we talked about it and discussed it. And nothing was necessarily off the table. And eventually, you know, we got to some success. And now it's, you know, it's a very successful. In our first year of uh, a rollout, we had a 75% compliance. No one believed that. And now we've gone from the largest 50,000 square feet down to 25,000 square feet buildings, which includes a lot of multifamily buildings. That's a whole other set of challenges. But you know, um, you know, I think the city is really setting a precedent in that way and working in ways it hadn't before. So that's just an example of all three. So bottom line of his question, what every city needs is their own Donna Hope in the mayor's <laughs> office. You know, not necessarily to be a puppet master, but to hold all the strings. I, I, I did, you know, when I left, um, and, and I, I gave a year's notice when I, when I left because I was so proud of the work I did. I didn't want to just give two weeks and have something fall apart. So I said, you know, I'll put together a packet that you can give to, I would recommend, the two people that you'll hire to replace me. <laughs> and it became it was like a phone book binder of like, once I realized all the work. I mean, it did take a lot, but um, uh, then they realized, you know, they recognized how much effort it took. And so... I want to share a couple of ideas that mm -hmm. could also perhaps provide assistance. One is understanding who it is that you want to speak to. Mm -hmm. So taking the time to get to know them before you need something from them. And then the other piece is once you have that understanding, be very succinct and clear about what it is that you want and how it would benefit the constituency that they represent. I've found over my 30 years as a consultant, those are the two things that when we're trying to impact policy, along with having more um, objective data versus anecdotal data, um, that's a little easier to defend within policy, mm. is the objective data along with understanding how those political entities receive information and they need that information, and then being very clear with what the ask is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we're gonna have to leave it there. I would certainly hope you would join me in thanking Debbie Andala of the Conservancy for Cuyahoga Valley National Park, Donna Hope, ecology consultant and diversity advocate for Green 2.0, and Samia Bray, the director of Emerald Cities Cleveland. Ladies, thank you.
I'm Stephanie Jansky, Director of Programming for the City Club, and today we've been listening to a forum on increasing diversity in the modern environmental movement, featuring, as Rick said, Samia Bray, Director of Emerald Cities Cleveland, Donna Hope, eco-consultant and diversity advocate for Green 2.0, and Debbie Andala, CEO of the Conservancy for Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Our moderator has been IdeaStream senior host and producer, Rick Jackson. Today's forum is part of our Igniting the Future series, sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation and the George Gunn Foundation. It's also part of our Sustainable NEO series, sponsored by Bank of America and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, with additional support from the Great Lakes Brewing Company. We're delighted the representatives from all of our sponsors with us today, and thank you for your continued support of City Club programming. Thank you, Rick, for moderating. Today's forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.